As our kids are making their way out, I want to invite you to take your Bible and find your place in Revelation chapter 4. I love hearing the sound of kids. Um, there's nothing like a church that has children in it. And so if, um, I, well, I'm not even going to go there, but uh, I'm reminded of Proverbs chapter 14 that tells us if where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. And so I'm grateful for a dirty church with a lot of kids in it. And uh, we're excited about what the Lord's doing there. So Revelation chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be working through this entire chapter and uh, picking up in our study here in Revelation as we left off just a few weeks ago as we ended 2019. Let me remind you of our theme verse for this study through the book of Revelation. It comes out of chapter 1, verse 3, where John says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is in what is written in it, for the time is near. I don't know if you realize it, but every day that you and I live is one day closer to the day that Jesus breaks the eastern sky. It's one day closer to the end of history as we know it. You see, the Apostle John here, in these words, is calling us to readiness. He's pointing out to us that the return of Christ is the climax of history. It's what everything has been building toward all throughout the canon of Scripture. It ushers in the next era of redemptive history. It's like, it, it, like death, is a door that opens into eternity. I like how Randy Alcorn, in his book, The, the Edge of Eternity, a fiction novel, he kind of articulates this idea in this way. Let's look at it on the screen there. It says, The roads men choose in the before life lead to infinite joy or infinite misery in the afterlife, to surpassing glory or surpassing tragedy. Everyone you pass on the street will one day be a creature of unimaginable greatness or unimaginable horror. It's as if life on this side of the door is the preliminaries and on the other side is the main event. It's like this is the tune-up and that is the concert. He says we live our lives in eternity's lobby, walking toward a door that will forever seal our destiny. The time is near. Be ready. Get ready. Thankfully, this door into eternity has been forecasted for us. That's the whole point of the revelation. It's the whole point of prophetic uh, literature and scripture as a whole. It's been spoken of. It's been predicted. The warnings have been issued so that people do have time to prepare themselves and to get ready. But at some point, we need to realize, we need to understand, and we need to remember that at some point, the door will close, time will be over, and the time to prepare and to get ready will have passed. And so the book of Revelation is God's forecaster for us. It's his warning to be ready. It's not given so that the believers, it's not given so that the church will know every little detailed aspect of how the eschaton or the end times will take place. It's not what it's about. It's given to encourage us. It's given to instruct a struggling and suffering church that, that, that the evil they're experiencing today will have victory one day, that there is going to come someone who will put to an end the evil one. It's given to encourage faithfulness. It's given to, to spur on holiness within the church in light of the imminent return of Christ. 
You see, Revelation calls for readiness. It is a stark reminder that we are to live our Christian lives in light of eternity and in light of an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-glorious, almighty God. So he writes to a suffering church then. He writes to a suffering and persecuted church today. You say, we live in America. We're not so persecuted. There are brothers and sisters all over this globe who are facing the fires of hell. And even in our day, we need to be encouraged that we have victory. We have power. We have the ability to go and make a difference in this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're picking up where we left off in our study Let me just kind of recap what's been happening. John the Apostle has been given a glimpse of the exalted Christ there in chapter 1. He sees Jesus standing among the lampstands. And then he's given seven messages to seven local churches speaking to their specific issues, their specific context, but also application for us even today, 2,000 or so years removed. Next, as we move now into chapter 4, we're going to see that he's swept up to the very door of heaven and shown what must take place after this. John was given this revelation for the purpose of readying a people for God's return so that they would always be ready. It was to give the church hope in their struggles, strength in their time of weakness. So revelation is a beautiful reminder that though the night is long, morning is coming. Morning is coming for all of us. And so let's look here and read Revelation chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1, John says this, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Can you imagine being John here at this moment, just just gloriously seeing the the door of heaven standing open? And the first first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, at it, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne and each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever these living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their thrones before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. What a glorious sight John was privy to. So as we move now into this chapter, we move into this further vision, this second vision, 
we begin to see the full expression of the coming of God's kingdom. This revelation will include the destruction of powers of evil, the the powers of Satan. It's going to include the destruction of death itself. But before all of these evil powers are destroyed, evil is going to rise up. It's going to break forth in this final desperate effort to frustrate the purposes of God by destroying the people of God. That's what we're going to see as we move now through the remainder of the revelation. This terrible conflict that takes place on earth between the church and these demonic powers embodied in an apostate civilization. For John's readers then, they're visioning Rome. For us today, we're thinking into the future at the the coming of Christ and the apostates that will be present there. But on all of this, the reality, these expressions in historical form are part of this dreadful conflict in the spiritual world between the kingdoms of God and Satan clashing. Really, you can think of it like this. The the battle is being waged in the spiritual realm, and it's spilling out into our physical realm. And so John here, in this vision, sees God. Suddenly, as we move through the, 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 the vision, as we move through the story of what we're seeing in this book, we're suddenly introduced to this image of a throne. This throne, this, this picture is going to be very dominating as we move through the remainder of what we're going to read through chapter 22. It's going to be interjected into this cosmic warfare. It's going to dominate everything. See, John beholds a vision of a sovereign God in full command of the course of human affairs as they move swiftly to their completion. Lord is always seated on his throne, on the plane of history. For us today, and as we look back, and for them in John's day, the church might appear to seem like they're being defeated, might seem like they're being pushed into a corner, might seem like they cannot resist the hostile powers of the world or the hostile powers of the enemy. But from God's perspective, from John's perspective, as he sees the Lord seated on the throne, he understands and we need to understand that we're not dominated. We're not pushed back into a corner. Our destiny, our lives, and the things that we are to accomplish are not determined by anything other than God who is seated on his throne, who is active. And so it's at his appointed time, the scroll of destiny will be handed to the lamb who himself will open the seals, bring history to a close, and usher in the eternal state. We will see that beginning to unfold in Revelation chapter 5. So this great throne room vision of chapters 4 and 5 serve as a unified vision to remind believers, you and I, living in the shadow of impeding persecution, that an omnipotent and an omniscient God sets upon the throne of heaven in full control of all things. So this morning, if you come in today and you don't know what's going on in your life, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, you don't know what the struggles that you're facing today, how they're going to play out tomorrow, and you're anxious and you're worried and you're, 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 you're at wit's end and you're scared and you're fearful, you need to rest assured that it doesn't matter what comes against you, our God sets upon his throne. If the enemies of hell were at our gate today, we have a God in heaven who sits on his throne and we are as safe and secure as humanly possible. Let me say that a better way, as divinely possible. In chapter 4, the sovereignty and the majesty of God the Father is central and worship ensues as he is celebrated as the creator. 
In chapter 5 that we will see, uh, Lord willing, next Sunday, God the Son, the Lamb, takes the spotlight and stands in the center of the throne. And he is celebrated as Redeemer. And then as chapter 5 closes, what we see is God the Father and God the Son are collectively put together and they are both worshipped together. It's an amazing throne room picture of the glory and the grandeur and the beauty of God. So we discover in these chapters a sense of awe, a sense of awe in worship that our souls long after. I don't know this morning about you, but I want a sense of awe. I want a greater sense of awe of who God is. I'm not satisfied to come in, sing a few songs, listen to a guy on a stage uh, t- say a few words, kind of check it off my bucket list for the day and go home. I'm not satisfied with that in my Christian walk. And I know what God's Word is telling us here is that He's not satisfied with that. In fact, if we were able to actually grasp the, the, the magnitude of what these chapters are going to lay out for us, we would understand that we were not created to just simply go through religious motions. We were created like these creatures that we've read about to stand in the awe of an almighty God and bow down before Him and offer every aspect of who we are to Him. We're called to stand in awe of who God is. So when was the last time you were awed in the presence of God? Just awed in worship over who God is. How long has it been? Was it this morning in your time with the Lord as you got before him with his word and and you prayed and you sought his face and you just stood in all of his glory? Maybe it's been quite some time. Maybe it's been years. Maybe it's been decades. It's time for us to stand in all of who God is. It's time for us to stand like Isaiah there in Isaiah chapter 6 and see him just beholding his glory and the train of his robe filling the temple and just feeling his awesomeness. He's not a weak God. He's not a, he's not a little, little bitty God that we just kind of stick up on the, on, the, on the dashboard of our cars and drive around and, and occasionally glance at him. That's not the God we serve. You may find that type of God in South Asia. Every time I'm over there and I'm riding around in a taxi or something, I'm looking at, the, at these idols on the, on the dashboard, and I'm thinking, you guys really worship these things. Like, I, God, did you got a place here before you got to like pick him up and carry him around? I don't want to serve a God like that. In fact, I serve a God, and we serve a God that we cannot contain him. In fact, the Word of God tells us, God himself said to Solomon, you think that I can be contained by a temple that you build? No. I'm just giving you the blessing of my presence there. This temple can't contain me. Heaven and earth can't contain me. That's the God that we serve. That's the picture we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 4. An awe-inspiring picture. And so let's not be satisfied with religious motions. Let's not be satisfied with religious activity. It will never sustain you in the trials of life. That's what, I mean, here, what's, what's going on in Revelation? This is what's going on in Revelation. John is given visions and writing this book to speak to people in his day who are facing the fires of persecution. 
And what's going to encourage them to continue to be faithful to the God that who has redeemed them other than to see him high and lifted up and glorious? You think religious activity is going to encourage them to remain faithful when they were being put to death and torched? Absolutely not. But what will sustain them to faithfulness is to see God in his glory and knowing that there's going to be a day that all of this that we're suffering and dealing with will come to an end and it will be vindicated because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what's going to spur them to glory. And today, that's what's going to spur us on. Why are we so, so mundane? Why are we so lastic, day, whatever that word is, so uh, apathetic? I speak Arcanese, as you know, and, and it's not really good English. What's going to sustain us and spur us is a better word to be faithful when it's tough and hard out there. Not religious activity. I, I was talking to a, a lady yesterday at, at the reception that we had for this funeral for, for Wayne Tackett. And the, uh, this lady, I oh, hope she's not here. I'm not going to offend or anything like that. But it came up, and she was telling me that she grew up in a Lutheran church, and, and she went back to this Lutheran church, I guess, when her husband was out of town. And, and uh, there was like six people in there. And she, she was like, man, I can't believe there's only six people there. And I was like, I can tell you, it's liberalism. Liberalism kills a church. Anytime we stop believing the Bible, stop believing the gospel, why would we go to church then? Why? What keeps me faithful to God if it's not a glorious picture of his mightiness? If it's just I want to check a box off and, and go through some religious activity, that might work for a generation or two. But the ones who are coming behind us are eventually going to say, what is the use? Let's go to the lake. And to that I would say amen. If it's just religious activity, I'll go be religious at the lake. I will fish and wakeboard and do anything else. Why go through all this? But when I catch a picture of who God is, I want, al I want to align my life to him. I want to come alongside him. I want to bow before him. I want to give it my all. That's what sustains us. That's what enriches us. That's what gives us a clear vision of how to live. It's all because of the greatness of our creator God. So this morning, I want to talk to you about what it means to worship God as creator and give you five reasons for it. And goodness gracious, I'm going to have to do it quickly. Reason number one. Let me say this. I'm going to take three seconds of my time. As we're walking through Revelation, I'm going to give you, even this morning, I'm going to talk a little bit about my, my perspective of how the end, things are going to, end times are going to play out. Uh, verses one and two, we're going to see some of that. But in, in this study, and I know when we started this, I know last summer I had fo folks would be, man, Pastor, I can't wait for this study in Revelation. I, you know, usually that's coming. I don't know what perspective they had from that, for that statement. Usually that's coming from a standpoint, from my experience of, I want you to lay out all these things because I want to know every little detail. I just told you earlier, God doesn't give us that sort of detail. In fact, he even says, no one knows the time or the hour, and this is Jesus saying this, only the Father. And so let's not be so bent toward, I want to know every little detail, and, and let's receive the overwhelming purpose of this book, and that is to encourage, spur us, strengthen us to be faithful, to be expectant, and to be about the mission of God, because there is a day coming that it's going to end. So that's why we get ready. So with that said, let me give you five reasons we should worship God as the creator, as what's happening here in this chapter. Number one, God holds history in his hand. What a great reminder that is. God holds history in his hand. John says, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. In other words, he's speaking about what's going to be in the future. So here in this first chapter, 
or back in the first chapter, John, if you remember, heard a voice that commanded him to write in a book what he would see. Now here in chapter 4, he sees this open door, and the same voice is bidding him to come up. Come up, and I'm going to show you what must take place after this. So the door is open so that John might pass in some sort of ecstatic state from where he is into the throne room of heaven to observe its wonders. He's going to remain caught up in this vision all the way through chapter 9. So Jesus here is the one who's speaking. He's the one who's speaking in chapter 1. He's bidding him to come up. It's an invitation to engage in a heavenly vision which will take place in the future at the end of History. Now, let me just pause right here and, and just clarify a certain aspect of eschatology, a certain aspect of the end times. So here in this verse, and I'm gonna, what I'm going to say is probably going to disagree with a, a lot of you, okay? It's just my personal position. I've got the platform. I can say whatever I want. Amen? And so I'm just going to give you my, my, my perspective on this. Here in, in chapter 1, when it says, come up and see, and he's speaking to John, dispensationalists or other pre-tribulational people, people of that pers persuasion of how the end times are going to unfold, they use this or, or, or believe this is a, is a verse that speaks to the rapture of the church or the snatching away of the church. And so in their view, John represents all Christians. The trumpet voice is that which is to be heard at the second coming of Christ. And so verse 1 Thessalonians 4.16 talks about the trumpet being sounded and the people of the church being snatched away, caught up into heaven. And so then the transporting of John into heaven stands for, obviously, the rapture of all Christians at the end of the age. So those who hold this view of eschatology believe that the great tribulation is, has nothing to do with the church, but it's a time of, of what's referred to as Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse Seven. It's a time for the Jewish people with whom God will revive his dealings during the last days. And so they further support this viewpoint by the fact that the word church or the, the, the name church, ecclesia, is not mentioned after chapter 3. And it's not mentioned between chapter 4 and chapter 19. And so sort of an argument of silence. Since the church is not mentioned, other things are happening. These uh, bowls of wrath and seals are being opened and poured out. And all these things are happening. Then that's the time that the church is in heaven during this seven-year tribulation. I personally do not believe that's what Paul, or not Paul, John here is unveiling for us. I am not a pre-trib. I am a historical premillennialist, which means I believe the church goes through the seven years tribulation. If you believe that's heresy and you want to stone me, I'll be out back later. You can do that. You can throw your rocks at me. Um, that'd be fine. So uh, here's, where, um, here's where we need to, to, to land on this. This is, not a, this is not a primary area of doctrine, right? There's scholars on all, I mean, I, I read several commentaries uh, every, every single week, and, and about half of them are split on this, right? A, a great, godly, biblical conservative scholars. And so this is not an area that we need to die. This is not a hill that we need to die on, but it's an area that we can have our own opinions and, and we can, it's good for debate. It's one of those fun debates when you're in seminary and you sit around and you're like, what do you think? And you just, nerds, you know, nerds do this. Debate on, I'm just kidding. I was never a nerd seminary. I was always struggling to get through. Um, I was just grateful to, to pass. And so uh, here's another reason that I don't believe this is viewed just grammatically, you look at it, uh, 
John is being spoken to specifically. Jesus is calling him up. He's not saying the church. It's in the, uh, there's no uh, plural pronoun there. There's none of that. He's speaking specifically to John and refers only to the reception of the revelations of the book, or he's to receive those in his own life. So those who hold this type of view are making an assumption that I don't believe has sufficient New Testament exegetical support. So I told you I was going to say something about that, and there it is. Um, I don't believe this is a proof text for a pre-tribulational rapture. So if you believe that's heretical, we will talk later. So what's, what's going on here? The message of verse 1 is simple. God knows the future, right? Come up here. I'm going to show you what must soon take place, what will take place in the future. So this heavenly vision was given to remind John that events on earth have their origin in heaven. In other words, the truth means that what is taking place in your life, what's taking place in your family, what's taking place in our community, our church, even our nation was first ordained in the mind of God. He is omniscient. He knows everything. So we should not misunderstand this to think that God causes all things, but he knows all things. He does not cause us to sin. We have the free will that he's given us to choose to rebel, to do what we want to do. We live in a fallen world, but in all of that, he knows all things and know how things are going to be orchestrated. This is no room. There is no room here for open theism. God holds history in his hand. What does that mean for you? He holds your history in his hand. I love this, the very word of history, the the, the way it is. If you look at it, it's two words, his story. You've probably heard this before. God holds his story in your life in the palm of his hand. That ought to encourage you to live faithfully for the Lord. Second reason we worship him as creator. God is majestic and glorious. He says that once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne room, throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. I don't know if you're awed by this, but when you begin to look at it, I'm going to try to break some of it down here in just a moment. But this is a beautiful picture of the glory and the majesty of God. Just Beautiful. I mean, he's caught up in the Spirit. This is a Holy Spirit-sent experience for him. And the first thing John sees in heaven is this majestic and glorious throne room of God, described not in some sort of anthropomorphic or some sort of man-centered terminology or imagery. In other words, he's not talking about, I saw a man, like happened in in chapter 1, where Jesus is standing there and he talks about his feet being blazing fire and, and his hair being white as wool. It's not spoken like that. It's not described like that. Instead, he he describes it in the terminology of light and precious stones. God is often described as light in the Bible. Here, John uses these three translucent stones, stones that would allow light to pass through and to to fragment and, and to have all these different, beautiful, glorious colors. And so he speaks of jasper. He speaks of, uh, of cornelian or sardio. And then he speaks of, of uh, the emerald. All of these pictures, in fact, the, the second one could actually speak of perhaps a diamond or an opal. Just glorious types of stones, speaking of the glory and the majesty of God. He talks about a rainbow. This is not perhaps not necessarily a rainbow that's, that's uh, two-dimensional like we would have. It's more probably like a halo that just kind of surrounds the throne of God, depicting his majesty, depicting his glory as it emanates. Similar to the more 
man-centered description, as I said in chapter 1. See, our God is majestic. His beauty is beyond anything and everything this world has to offer. God is glorious. You think of the most beautiful thing in the world. I've been, not to a lot of places, but I've been to a few places that are just magnificent. I, uh, you know that a few years ago, Karen and I had the opportunity to be at the Grand Canyon when the SBC was in, in, in Phoenix, and we drove up there and spent a couple nights. And just, if you've been to the Grand Canyon, you know how majestic it is to stand there and just to, to see what God has created. He's better than that. God is glorious. i got to move. So let's move to number three. God is worshipped by heaven and earth. Verse 4, we see these 24 thrones and 24 elders seated on them. Verses 6 through 8, we see these four living creatures who are full of eyes and have six wings and, and just these descriptions that would lead us to, to just kind of marvel at what these creatures would have looked like and what this scene would have been like. And so these 24 elders are seated on these 24 thrones and they're surrounding the throne of God. You ask the question, who are these elders? Who are these people? Who are these figures that we're reading about? I believe they're angelic figures. I don't believe that they are believers, Old Testament or New Testament, seated around the throne. I believe these are a, another uh, a group or another sect of angels or angelic beings. I believe this because they stand in close proximity to the four living creatures, which are closer to God's throne than they are. I believe it because in chapter 5, verse 8, they join together with the four creatures in worship of the Lamb, and they offer bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So this function is formed by one, performed by one who is explicitly referred to as an angel in chapter 8, verse 3. And so these things, to me, perform tell us that they perform some kind of mediating function of expediting the prayers of the saints to the throne of God. We see also that in one of these performs an angelic function in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where the question is asked of John, and he says, Sir, you, you know better than I. So John actually refers to him in a way that perhaps he wouldn't have said or addressed if it was a fellow believer. And so I personally believe these are angels, these 24 elders standing there, ministering before the Lord, serving the Lord. And along with them, there are these four living creatures. The Bible tells us they're full of eyes in front and behind, very similar to the image we see in Ezekiel chapter 1. It signifies unceasing, vigilant. They have six wings which speak of their swiftness. So they might serve as extensions of God's omniscient as they watch over his creation. John describes them further by saying that they had the appearance of a lion. They had the appearance of an ox. They have the appearance of a man and an eagle in flight. So four different creatures, four different images about them. It seems highly probable that these four different appearances represent the four aspects of nature. And so perhaps these four living creatures that have these different faces, if you will, would represent domesticated life and, and wild beasts and then the humans and as well as flying creatures. And so they would represent the worship of God by the totality of his creation or represent those who execute his will and rule over creation. Either way, the worship of God is their objective as they declare his holiness. In the beginning, all things worship God and declared his holiness. If you were to go back to Genesis 1 and 2, you would see that. Today, only those in heaven and the few redeemed here on the earth worship God and praise and glory his, glorify his name. But there's coming a day every knee will bow, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2. Every tongue will confess and declare the fame of our God. 
He is awesome and worshiped by heaven and earth. Fourthly, God is awesome in power. Number five, or verse five, says, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. So these lightnings and thunders that proceed here from the throne are symbolic of the awesomeness and the power and the majesty of God. I don't know about you, but I've been caught out in a thunderstorm And if you've ever been caught in a thunderstorm and had lightning strike near you, you felt the awesome power of the lightning. I remember one time I was fishing in northwest Arkansas on my home lake, Beaver Lake, and I was fishing with a friend. This was when I was a college pastor, and we were in this little bitty 14-foot john boat. Never fish in a 14-foot john boat when it comes a flood, a storm like that. And so, I mean, it just come up on us really quick. We hurried over to a, a nearby boat dock, which is a floating boat dock. It was brand new, this beautiful thing. We got up under that dock, which is kind of crazy because it's made out of metal, but you're standing on wood. And right up on the hillside, like 50 yards from us, lightning just pounded this tree. And the, the noise, boom, just, just bellowed out. You see bark flying. And, of course, we're like ducking. I mean, if it would have hit the, the, the boat dock, we would have been crispy critters. No doubt about it. Just the awesome power of lightning. I'm not an electrician, so I don't understand all that stuff. But I know that I would have been a crispy critter. That's what's going on here. These descriptions remind the reader of the great theophany there on Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19. As God is in his cloud on the mountaintop and Moses comes up to receive the law. The Bible tells us there that the mountain was rumbling. The Jews would have understood this. The people of God would have understand this, understood this imagery. This association would remind the churches of that unapproachable and transcendent aspect of who God is in this heavenly vision, while at the same time it would remind them that it was God, this thunderous, powerful, majestic God, who is the one who called his people to himself, a slave people, and redeemed them back to himself. So they remind us of the power of his voice which causes the deer to give birth and strips the forest bare. I was thinking about this, this particular point this morning. I was getting ready, and I was reminded of Psalm 29, where it speaks about the voice of God, that it actually does strip the forest bare, that it knocks over the cedars of Lebanon, but at the same time, it is quiet and gentle enough to call the deer to give birth to their fawns. That's the awesome power of God. Seven torches of fire here, I believe, speak of the seven spirits of God that we've already seen in chapter 1, verse 4. And so it speaks of the fullness of the Spirit of God involved here in this moment. John sees a powerful and awesome picture of God in his glory. He is mighty. I wonder today, is our view of God like this? There's a fifth reason we worship God. He's worshiped for his creation. As this chapter ends, we see the 24 elders and the four living creatures joining together in the worship of God collectively, but they're doing it because he is the one who created all that there is. Look at what he says in verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, and the 24 elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne. You see how this throne is just repetitive throughout this this vision. Also, this concept of forever and ever is repeated, repeated over and over again in this vision. God is eternal. God is seated, seated on his throne. And so they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Together, these two groups of angelic beings join in the worship and the adoration of the Creator. 
There's a slight difference to this second song. See, the four living creatures praise God for his essential nature as the Holy One, saying, holy, holy, holy. Now the 24 elders are praising him for his created works. And so as one is saying, holy, 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 the others are casting down their crowns and giving God glory for his creation. God is the one who created all things, and by his sovereign will they exist. We need to remember that today. God is sovereign. God is creator. God is sustainer. And so we worship him because he created all that there is, and by his will they exist. The greatness of God the Father, the greatness of God the creator is fully on display here, fully on display for John, fully on display for us. He is awesome in power. He is glorious in his splendor. He is timeless. I mean, again, he says forever and ever. God knows all things because he is in all places at all times. He is timeless, and as because of that, he is worthy of worship from his creation. Heaven stands in all of him. All of heaven stands in, the, in, in all of the glory of God. Even Satan himself, himself has to stand in all of who God is. John here stands in all of him. The question is, do we stand in all of him? Do we stand in all of God in our worship when we gather together, or do we just sing songs and go home? Do we stand in all of God when we read his word, or we just kind of close the Bible and we just go about our day? Do we stand in all of God when we go about our business at work, or we go about our business at school, or we go about our business and our daily activities throughout the, the week? Do we stand in all of who God is? Is our corporate worship affected? because of the all of God? Is our private worship affected because of the glory and the all of God? Individually, are our, are our hearts set upon the Lord? Are our affections upon God? Because we see him as Isaiah saw him. Worship should never be reduced down to a four-song set before a sermon is preached. And we say, well, I worship today. You know what? I've been in worship services, quote, unquote, many, many times and not worshiped one bit. Some of you this morning might have been guilty of that. It happens a lot more than we would like to admit. I just got to admit this morning, sometimes I get so caught up and in my mind wanting things to go proper here in our worship service that I fail to worship the God that, needs, that deserves my worship. I'm so caught up in, man, we missed that. We didn't say that. What do I need to say next? And I don't stand in the glory of who God is, and I'm not ascribing to him the worth that, should, that he's due. It's so often the case in our lives. This morning, let's see God mighty in power, mighty in his creation, mighty even in his salvation. Sometimes we have the wrong perspective on this worship. We begin to think that it's a warm, fuzzy feeling. I can remember as a teenager in my home church, Cross Church now, used to be called First Baptist Springdale, big, huge choir. And man, they would come in. I think I've told you this before. The, the, our choir would come in from both sides. And, and it's like 150, 200 people in the choir, big, big auditorium. And they would come in and they would crisscross in the, in the aisles. And it was just this cool thing. It was really uh, just, just a great show to put on. And I don't remember what the song was. And I remember it used to always be kind of the same intro for the, uh, the organ playing or something like that. And, and they would come through and they would sing this opening song. And man, I would get this woo, warm, fuzzy feeling. Man, we're here to worship. I wasn't even a Christian at the time. And so I began to realize that I was longing for that, that sensation more than I was longing for the, the theology of the God we're singing to. 
I wanted the, the feeling. I wanted the buzz, if you will. Sometimes we get caught up in that. Well, they didn't sing my song. They didn't sing what I liked. They didn't like my genre. It doesn't matter what the type of songs we sing. Let's never get caught up on that junk. If the song is simple enough for us to sing, if the song has lyrics that bring honor and glory to God, if the song is theologically sound and rich and deep, let's sing it to the Lord, regardless if it's from 1850, 1950, or if it was written last week. It doesn't matter, people. We've come a long ways in that area in four years, and I'm grateful to God for that, and I'm grateful to you as a church. You have grown in that area, so thank you for that. We're not getting caught up in those worship wars like so many other churches are even here in 2020. So what is worship? It's the praise. It's the adoration. But more than that, it's the surrender of a life to God. See, as we sing, we're saying, you are worthy of my life. I'm not just singing to you. I'm not just saying words to you. I'm giving myself to you. That's why when we were doing the offering a while ago, I'm saying, you know what? We worship in song. We worship in preaching and teaching and service. Man, what is the most prized treasure we have for many of us? It's the money that we have, right? So we give that to the Lord. It's an act of saying, I give you what is most precious to me. I give you what actually sustains my life. I'm willing to give it to you because you're worthy of that. So another question comes, how do we know if we've worshiped God? How do we know? You, span, you, you pan through the Bible, and what you see is when people encountered God and they had a worshipful experience, I mean, it doesn't always paint itself out or play itself out as they had this worship service and they had songs singing a preacher. It, a lot of times it's not like that. But when a person encountered God in his holiness and, and, and saw him for who he is, that person, whether it's a man or a woman, left change. And sometimes the Bible even indicates it in the sense that it tells us that his name was changed. Abram becomes Abraham. Jacob becomes Israel. Uh, Saul becomes Paul of Tarsus. They had this all-inspiring picture of who God is, this encounter with the glorious God of heaven, the glorious creator, and the glorious Savior, and it radically changed their life. So we know we worship God when there's some aspect of lifestyle change. We're not talking about behavioral modification. We're talking about my affection for God was heightened and fueled and fanned into flame so that I love God more now than I did when I came in or when I entered this experience. I'm reminded even this morning, if you're reading the Bible through with me this year, Mark chapter 5, when Jesus gets to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and he comes across this demon-possessed man, we call him the, the, the demoniac from the Gerasenes, and he comes just to Jesus, are you here to torment me? Here to, and they ask, these, these legion of demons ask, you know the story, if they can kind of be cast out into these pigs and they run over the cliff and they die and all this stuff happens, the people come and say, you got to leave here, which just blows me away. The people would see this miracle and say, Jesus, we can't really handle your power and your presence, please leave. God, may we never be like that. But here's what this man does who had been demon-possessed. Sitting there in his right mind, he's clothed, Mark tells us. And when Jesus gets up to cross the sea again, he says, I really want to go with you. Can I come? I want to be about the business of proclaiming and announcing and heralding the fame of your great name. And Jesus says, it's not for you, but this is what you can do. Go back to where you are from and tell them what great things God's done for you. 
And Mark tells us that he went into the Decapolis and began to proclaim the fame and the glory of Jesus, began to tell his story of how Jesus had changed his life. That is worship. So this morning, in view of God's greatness, how do we worship him? For some, your act of worship should be a confession of your sin. It should be repentance. It should be turning to Jesus in faith. You need to believe the gospel. You you need to be like that demoniac who is now, because of the gospel, because of your encounter with Jesus, you can be sitting in your right mind as a child of God. Others, as Christians, you need to realize where you're at. And you too, just say, Lord, I'm not where I need to be. I I don't see you as glorious as you really are. Help me. Forgive me for not worshiping you. Forgive me for not surrendering my life to you, for not celebrating you, for not disdaining all of you. And just where you're at, doesn't matter where you're at, come to him. The good news is he loves you. Every one of us he loves. Doesn't matter what your life style is. Doesn't matter what your background is. Doesn't matter what your backstory is. God loves you, and he loves you so much that he loves you even in your in your brokenness. He loves you in your sin. See, that's the bad news that the Bible tells us, that we've all sinned, fall short of the glory of God. We're rebellious, rebellious people under the just penalty of our sin. But God loves us. That's the good and the best news. He's done everything necessary so that we can be forgiven of our sins. So in a moment, Nick's going to come. He's going to play. We're going to sing. This is our time of response like we do every Sunday. I want to encourage you to respond. Maybe you need to respond publicly. Maybe you need to come forward, and, and I'll get with one of our encouragers. I'll just walk through the gospel. Maybe you need to come and just make these steps and alter the Lord and just pray before him. Maybe you need to turn around in your seat and kneel down. Whatever it is, we have freedom here, freedom in, to do whatever the Lord leads us to do. But here's what we cannot have freedom to do. Say no, right? We always want to say yes to the Lord Jesus and his spirit's prompting in our life. So let's pray, and let's respond to the word of God. Father, we thank you this morning for being good to us. God, thank you for being gracious and and calling to us. God, thank you even this morning for allowing us to to peek into this vision that John was privy to, to see the glory and the grandeur of our God. I pray this morning that wherever we're at individually, that we've been drawn closer to you. Lord, I pray that for those who are walking in sin, that we would be willing to say, you know what, I want to set down that sin. It's not good for me. It's not the best thing for me. In fact, It's not even where I should be living my life. It's not what I was created for. There's something better awaiting me, and I want that. I want God because he's my creator. I want God because he knows what's best for me. I want God because he's good and he's faithful and he's true. And everything in this world, everything I've ever lived my life for is nothing but a lie. I'm beginning to realize that. So this morning, Lord, I pray that people who are in that predicament would come to you in faith, come to you in repentance. And we know, based upon your word, that you will meet them with forgiveness, restoration, healing. God, I pray that's true for all of us all across this room. For lost men, women, teenagers, children, God, I pray they'd be saved this morning. For adults who are walking into guilty distance, God, I pray they would come home today. Thank you for your greatness. Thank you for your grace. Now, Lord, help us to respond in faith. We pray in Jesus' name stand to our feet. The Lord is speaking into your life. This is the time for us to respond, and so let's do that.